0: Uh, it's hard to believe that it's, it's Christmas is this week. It's a little crazy, huh? May, I mean, probably thinking about all the stuff that you got to still have to do. How many of you still have a bunch of stuff that needs to be accomplished before Christmas? How many of you have yet to do your Christmas shopping? <laughs> all right. How many of you are completely done? Wow. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Um, How many of you are just getting ready to have your Christmas party? I mean, you're ready to get ready to your family. How many of you are excited about seeing your family for Christmas? How many of you are not excited about seeing your family for Christmas? It's really bad when your family's right beside you and you lift up your hand and you just look at them, right? I think some of us are a little bit like that. And we all have these Christmas traditions that we do. And, and, um, I don't know what your Christmas traditions are, what you do with your family during the Christmas season, but we have several traditions in our home. Um, one of the things that we do is when we, we go and make our Christmas tree trek to Home Depot, um, we like to go get ornaments. And each, one, each year we get ornaments. Uh, d- um, each family member gets one ornament, and we, get to, we, we have something that represents the year, what it meant to us. And we, we do different things. We like to go to the Christmas lights, like Lionhurst. How many of you take your family out to see the Christmas lights on liners Avenue? Anybody do that? How many of you, you know who you, where you should go if you haven't gone yet? Go to Mooseheart. Mooseheart, not that I'm giving a play for the fact that Mooseheart people, we have some here. But it's beautiful, except for the big, giant Green Bay Packer head that's there. Okay? It's a great place to go. And it's, it's well worth the, the money to go and take your family to see the Christmas lights. And, and I like seeing Christmas lights. I like having the Christmas food and the Christmas parties and going to Christmas parades. And uh, a few years ago, we had to go to a Christmas parade in Naperville. And it, it was a trip. It really was. Just seeing all of the stuff at this parade, and I'm watching it go by, and you see all of the different floats by all the different civic organizations and you see all of the different displays that are going through. I mean, they had, of course, Santa and Mrs. Claus, and they're waving. And, and they also have, uh, they even had stormtroopers and Darth Vader marching in the Christmas parade. And I'm watching this, and I'm, I, I just stop, and I think to myself, and I realize something. All of these things went by, and the one, what was the one thing that was missing? Jesus. Jesus. And, and I thought of that, and I'm like, you know, that's like saying we're going to celebrate the 4th of July without fireworks. That's like saying that we're going to have a football season without a Super Bowl. It's all these things. I mean, we, we forget the reason for the season. And we all get caught up and we get so busy with all the externals and all those other things that we forget the reason for our season. And that is to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. So what I'd like us to do is pause for a moment. Because undoubtedly, many of us, we don't mean to. But that happens to us. We get so busy caught up trying to think of Christmas lists and presents and holidays and Christmas cards and treats and how we're trying to figure out the budget and the bills and all of these different things are coming and crowding at us that we forget to pause and think about the reason for Christmas. And that's Jesus. Jesus, the one true Son of God, who came to identify with us. He came to be born to die take our sins upon himself that we might have a relationship with almighty God. It's a wonderful thing. So I'd like to give us some holiday tips from God's word. Holiday tips on how we might seize the season. We might take advantage and reconnect with the God who made us and gave his son to die for us that we might have a relationship with him. Before we go any further, let's pause and ask for God's blessing on our time together, shall we? Father, we come into your presence asking you to awaken our hearts to the reality of who you are. Lord, help us to hear your voice, to see your handiwork. Lord, we, we've we been so busy dealing with all of our all of the the hectic things of the season that we, we come before you now pausing, asking you to open wide our hearts that we might see who you are. So Lord, please help us to do what your word has laid forth that we might experience the joy of a relationship with you and that you came to die to give us. We ask your blessing on our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, uh, as I was thinking about this past week and I was meditating upon this, I remember I was surfing the web. And if you were anywhere on Facebook or on the web, you undoubtedly encountered the whole Duck Dynasty controversy. It is everywhere. And what, what, um, what's, what's amazing to me about this is not so much what he said, okay, he made some comments about homosexuality and sin, Uh, Sin in general, but homosexuality in particular. And that's not what shocked me. What shocked me is that A&E had a hard time with it because they know who the guy is. He hasn't changed. He's always been that way. He's always stood forth for truth. And whether you you like Duck Dynasty or not, what what just blew my mind is just the controversy that has erupted uh, around this whole deal. And And I was thinking about it. Why was it controversial? Well, it was controversial because he was speaking something from the Bible, first of all. And the Bible is the most controversial book there is. There's no other book more controversial. You can read almost anything except the Bible in a lot of places. And not only is it controversial because it talks about the Bible, but the Bible is also controversial because it talks about Jesus, and Jesus is the most controversial figure to ever walk the face of the earth. And if we're to seize this season, we have to stop and pause and try to na- uh, navigate through these controversies. And do you realize something? Jesus is as controversial now as he was 2,000 years ago. He's never not been controversial, ever. He's always been controversial. And what I'd like us to do is we're going to go back in time. We're going to get in the DeLorean. Okay? Okay. Make sure the flex capacitor is working. Okay? got to get the 1.21 gigawatts. Hit 88 miles per hour. We're going back in time. And we're going to see and witness what was going on. Because we're going to see that this controversy that has erupted in our day over Duck Dynasty compares nothing to the controversy that erupted during this first century during the time of Christ. To see... What his coming brings. And that's the first point I want you to write down. And there's notes that you can follow along with me in your bulletins. Just pull those out. And this first point that I want you to take with me is this. is we need to, If we're going to seize this season, we need to be navigating the controversies surrounding this child. We've got to navigate the controversies surrounding this child. And he does bring controversy wherever he goes in whatever time he is. Whether that's in Indonesia, Cape Verde, Guyana, Nauru, Kazakhstan, or Grenada, Jesus is controversial. He's the most controversial figure to have ever walked the face of the earth. Now, it's interesting, as as we're dealing, um, you know, we're talking about a baby. I can't but help think of our new little baby, Josiah, who arrived November 16th. And my wife was talking. She likes to take Josiah out shopping, and she's in one of these wrap things that I tried to wear, and it didn't work. I got it on my arms, and then I, I said, honey, it didn't work. She's like, because it was made for me, bonehead. Okay, I tried to get this thing on, but she's walking around, and she's like, it's amazing how strangers start talking to you that you don't even know when you have a baby like this. And they just walk up as if you're best friends <laughs> and start talking to you about your baby. And my wife is saying this, because babies have a way of attracting attention. I mean, think about all the controversy, that, or not just controversy, but how many people... Um, how the world just exploded in the media on July 22nd, 2013. Do you know what baby was born July 22nd, 2013? Prince George. Prince George, right? William and Kate had a baby. And this little kid, he's five months old. I Googled him. He has 66 million hits. The kid's five months old, right? He had paparazzi surrounding this kid from the time that he was in the hospital. All this stuff was written about him and guessing about him. And you know what? That still fails in comparison to what it was like in the first century surrounding the birth of Christ. Except his arrival was a lot less inauspicious. He didn't have paparazzi awaiting him, but he did have prophecy that was written about his coming. He had this, these prophecies that were, that were about him and his arrival. Now, see, that's one of the reasons why he is controversial, because of the prophecies that were written about him before he ever arrived. Now, when he did arrive on the scene, it was very inauspicious. There was a census going on, so all of the people of that, like, town that had been there historically had to go back into that town to be uh, counted in this census, So we're talking about this in the very first century and how it was all playing out. And you're talking about the city of Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem, scholars differ, was between about 500 and 2,000 people. So it was a relatively small town, but by the ancient world standards, pretty average. But it would swell. Sometimes it would double, triple, or even quadruple during the census, which explains why there was no room for him at the end. This place was packed to the gills. People had all their friends over. Family houses were packed. People are sleeping on mats. And the, Jesus and or Joseph and Mary show up, and no reason. There's there's now we understand. Excuse me, why there was no room for him at the end? So they show up, and and she's in full labor. She's going into full labor, and Joseph, I'm pretty sure, is pretty freaked out. He didn't have a lot of, I'm sure, experience with obstetrics. And yet he delivers this child in this stable and they place this child in the manger when the shepherds then show up. Because the angels had appeared to him and appeared to them while they're out shepherding their sheep and they go to pay homage to this child. Now we know that seven days later they took baby Jesus into the city of Jerusalem which was six miles away and they had him circumcised and dedicated to the Lord. And then they went back to Bethlehem where they stayed for about two years. And it was during that time where the Magi showed up. Now, the Magi, they comes from the Greek word magioi. And it literally means that these were, these were actually like sorcerers, religious men. They were experts in all kinds of religious and sacred texts. And they were probably Babylonian. And they had heard undoubtedly these prophecies about Jesus when the Jews had been in exile in Babylon many years before. And they, were, they had a treasure trove of information at their disposal. And they read and they studied. And they were looking into the night sky when this star that appears that indicates that there has been a Messiah born. And so they leave, they saddle up, get on their camels, and they take a, a whole contingency with them. I mean, how many kings were there? Well, we, we traditionally think, before you answer, we traditionally think, how many? Three. The reality is, is we don't know. The only reason we get that three kings of Orient are is because of the song and because of the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And we think that they're, because there were three gifts, there were three magi. But there, there were probably more of them, and they had a whole contingency with them. So they show up, and they're going to a foreign land, and they they show up to meet uh, the ruler of this land, which is Herod at the time. This is Herod the Great, King Herod. And undoubtedly, after they have this interchange with one another, and you you see this all the time when they have officials from different countries, and they have all this protocol they have to go through, there's an exchanging of gifts, there's a greeting, they go through all this stuff, and I'm sure Herod's guys are like, okay, these guys are here, why are they here right now? Well, then they hear the question. Look at our text for today in Matthew chapter 2. They show up and they say in verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw, saw his star in the east when it rose and have come to worship him. Now notice the response. When Herod her, the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. He was contra- it, this was controversial. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. He's quoting this prophecy from the book of Micah, chapter 5, verse 2 through 4. And you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. So we see then that he is completely controversial. Why? Well, he was controversial because. He had a right to a kingship. King David was the greatest king in all of Israel's history, and he was born in Bethlehem. And so David was also purported in Scripture to have an everlasting lineage of kings. And this child was born in that lineage, and he would boast the birthplace, the same place from where David was from. But see, Herod was a puppet king. He was Ijumean, which means he was half-Jewish. And he was a, a puppet ruler of Rome. He didn't have a, a real strong claim to the throne. So this guy comes along, and this prophecy says that he has a right to this throne. And it freaks Herod out. And Herod is a megalomaniac, number one. I mean, this guy, if he you, if you had anybody that, total, that would, had any possibility of taking his throne, he had him killed. And it meant his wife. It meant his sons. Matter of fact, Caesar even said that I would rather be Caesar, that I would rather be Herod's pig than his son because he executed his sons if they had any threat whatsoever of taking his throne. This was a paranoid guy that wanted power at all costs. So we see that Jesus' birth and him coming into this world was controversial from the get go. The prophecies concerning him. And there's prophecies. These prophecies are things that God wrote in His Word about things that will come true. Some of them came true at His first coming, and some will come true at His second coming. But God has laid forth in His Word what will happen at the end of time. He has laid it forth for us. Now, we don't know all the details, but we know that He's going to bring it to completion in His way. So Christ is seen as a threat because of the prophecies that are surrounding Him, but He's also seen as a threat because of the position he occupies because of the position he occupies, because he is the true king, the coming king, the one who would be the ruler of all. And we see not only of the ruler then, but of the ruler now that he is the one true king. And at his word, this is what the Bible says in Philippians chapter two. Check this out. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of the position that he occupies, that he is the coming king, the ruler who is entering into this world. Now he is the king, whether we recognize him as that or not. Now many of us treat Jesus as the British treat Queen Elizabeth. In that, We give honor, we'll give verbal recognition, but the reality is, like Queen Elizabeth, she really has no power. The power is in the prime minister. So we give a verbal recognition, but we don't really doesn't really mean anything. And that's how many of us treat Jesus. We give a verbal recognition, hey, you're the king, you're the one who's true, but our life doesn't reflect that truth. And God is saying to us, no, your life needs to reflect that truth. Now thirdly, He is controversial because of the power he wields. He has complete and absolute power. He is omnipotent. There's nothing he cannot do. Earthly rulers have their limit, whether that is by government, constitution, or geography. However, Jesus has no boundaries whatsoever. There's no arena over which his lordship is not. After his resurrection from the dead and before he ascended it into heaven, he said this in Matthew 28, 18. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. That he has complete power. Now, he allows evil to occur. Some people say, if God is so good, then why doesn't he stop evil? The reason is, is he, he has allowed it to occur and he will stop it at a point in time. But He is also a God who is not removed from evil, but made Himself susceptible to the very evil that we experience by taking on flesh and suffering at the hands of evil to show His judgment upon it and to show that He is placing Himself in our stead with us to identify with us so that we might be brought to God and that evil might be defeated. So he's not a God that's removed from our suffering, but is intimately acquainted with it. That's why the, it was so essential for Christ to be born man, that he could be identify with us and experience the, the pains and the frustrations that we experience. That he's not a God far removed, but he's a God intimately acquainted. We've all heard the phrase, you know, it, it'd be different if you walked a mile in his shoes or her shoes. See, Christ was stepping in to walk with us and experience what we experience, except he himself did not sin. He's controversial not only of the power he wields, but of the purpose he serves. Of the purpose he serves. We can see that even in the names that he's given. We see this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The word Jesus, Yeshua, means Savior. He will save people from their sins. He came to save us from our sins. And not just that, I mean, there are many other reasons that he came. Matter of fact, John Piper, he's a, he a Christian author, former pastor, scholar. He wrote a book called 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die. And he just mines the scriptures and all of the reasons why Jesus came to save us, to destroy the works of the devil. I mean, and there are many different once he came to take on the wrath of God, to please his heavenly father, to learn obedience and be perfected, to achieve his own resurrection from the dead, to show the wealth of God's grace and love toward sinners, to show his own love toward us, to forgive our sins, to provide the basis of our justification, and on and on. He had a purpose. As Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus' coming was epic. Beyond anything we could ever fathom. His coming is God's declaration that all is not right with the world. It reveals that this world is broken and is in need of fixing. It is not getting any better. You know, many people disagree with that today. Some think that we, with all of the technological advances and all of the the standard of living and all of the advances in education, that the world is becoming better and better. But do you know, with the more comforts and benefits that we experience, the less we start to care about other people? Did you realize that? Some stats were released this past week, or actually uh, this past month, um, and it's from the Chronicle of Philanthropy. It's interesting. They notice that the states that give the most to charity are the states that have the most faith in them and have the least wealth, while the states that have the most wealth have the tendency to have the least amount of faith, which means this. There's two things you can take away from that. Number one, money is the root of all evil. People think that they can be self-sufficient and don't need God if they have all of the money and they're comfortable on their own they think of faith as a crutch for life and secondly secondly it shows that our money gives an illusion that we're completely self-sufficient see we have kicked god out of the throne room of our hearts and placed ourselves there instead may god forgive us may god give us hearts to help other people as he himself has helped us See, Herod wanted to be his own ruler and didn't want anyone else to threaten his position. See, that's why Jesus is so controversial, because of the place he demands. He demands first place in your hearts. All of our hearts, without exception. That might sound very harsh to many of us. He demands it? Yes, he demands it. Why? Because he's God. And is it an unloving thing for him to demand it? No. Think about it. When you, if you have small children, as I do, and I demand them not touch the oven when it's hot, am I unloving? If I demand that they don't have that extra cookie after they've been eating sugar all day, am I an unloving parent? No, I'm in a loving parent because I'm giving them instruction. I'm demanding because I do love them. And God demands that to have first place in our hearts because that is what he has done. He has given us everything because he's given us himself See, what most people fail to realize is that God is the gospel. He is giving us himself, which is greater than anything else than this world could ever offer. God himself is the gospel, and the gift that he gives is his son, that we can have a relationship with him. That's why some people see Christ as a threat, and others see Christ as a treasure. He's a threat because He he challenges our way of life and He's judging our sin. He's demanding repentance. But He's a treasure because he, he, He died on the cross for our sins knowing that we could not pay a price. Only He could. And He bought us by giving Himself for us. He is a treasure. But I digress. He's the greatest treasure man has to offer, which would explain why the Magi were so intrigued to make a journey to Israel. They wanted to see this king that they had heard about and studied. We can imagine what it was like for them, studying holy books, undoubtedly hearing about the prophecies from Jews that they'd interacted with over the years. The tales about him had drifted down through time. They were experts in such things as astrology, dream interpretation, sacred writings, wisdom, and magic. Knowing all they did, why did they follow? What would possess them to mount their camels and make an 800-mile trek to Jerusalem? See, I believe that they were compelled to come. They were compelled to see and understand whom this great king was and would be and what he would be like. God draws us through his son. It is a compulsion, I pray, that everyone has. As Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. God compels them. And you feel that compelling. And maybe you feel that that God is compelling you. You're feeling that conviction of sin. You're feeling that you want to turn back. But something is just holding on. And I would encourage you to surrender to that compulsion. That's that next point in your notes. That we all must do. Surrendering to the compulsion to follow. How do we do that? There's three ways. And it's, we can look at the Magi to see. See, they acted on what they knew and believed. They didn't know everything, but they weren't called to know everything. They acted on what they did know. And they responded accordingly. And that meant three things to follow Jesus. First of all, they had to, they had to leave confidently. They left home. They had to leave everything behind. See, when God calls us to Himself, He expects us to leave everything we know to follow Him. It means that we leave all that we're comfortable with, all that we're familiar with, and follow Him. And for them, it meant going to a foreign land to inquire of God's Messiah. They weren't Jewish, but they believed. When Jesus calls us to follow him, he expects us to come wholeheartedly, and not just on Sunday morning, but all of the time. He wants to have that relationship with us, not just by giving our money. No, he wants our entire life, and he will have nothing else. And in order to leave confidently, we have to leave everything that we know behind, especially our life of sin. For many of us, that's hard. And do you know that's nothing new? In the Bible, especially the Old Testament, there's a story about Lot. Lot was Abraham's nephew, and he lived in the city of Sodom, which we have heard about, the judgment of God on Sodom and Gomorrah, because of their sexual sin. And God had decided to bring his wrath directly on them with fire and brimstone. But Lot was considered to be a righteous man, so God gives him an opportunity to escape before his judgment would be met out in all of its fury. So Lot is to escape along with his wife, his two daughters, and the two men that his daughters were engaged to, so he pleads with the sons and his future sons-in-law, "Come on let 's go god 's judgment is coming." They thought he was joking. So they stayed. So he grabs his daughters, he grabs his wife, and he 's still kind of frantic when the angels of God come and say, "Get out, god 's wrath is coming now. Go now, don 't look back." And so they start to leave and flee, and then they can hear in the distance the cries. They can hear the explosions. And they're sensing the, the fear. The, the hair is standing back on their head. The adrenaline is, is moving. They're grabbing their stuff. They're running for their very lives. And then Lot's wife does what she wasn't supposed to do she turned back to look. And when she did, she turned to a pillar of salt. Now, the point of that story is to show what it's like after God has freed us from our life of sin when we look back and turn to it. We become ineffective. See, when God calls us to leave our life of sin, we're not to turn back to it. We're to leave it. Yeah, we're going to have struggles. And we have to learn to put to death the misdeeds of our flesh, to take up our cross daily. Each one of us do. There is not one perfect person in this room. We all have struggles. We all have dents of disobedience. We all have areas of sin in our life. But we continually put that to death as we surrender it to God. And we continually press on to the life that he has for us. Taking the next step. One at a time. And they're hard steps. And they're painful steps. And sometimes they're baby steps. And sometimes we're going to fall. Sometimes we're going to trip. Sometimes we're going to falter. Sometimes we're going to have to face the consequences of our actions for, for a long time. Because of the choices that we made. But there's still forgiveness. And we get back up and we continue walking step by step in the new life that God has for us. But don't turn back to that life of sin. Don't go back to it. Because it offers nothing but death. That's what he's saying. Leave confidently that life of sin behind. Don't try to think that you can keep doing having your sin in God. It doesn't work. It's like taking two magnets. You ever taken two magnets? And you you take the two positive sides of it and you put it together, what happens? They repel, right? No matter how much you try to get them to stick, they don't stick. One has to be negative and one has to be positive, Right? See, this is the way it is with your sin and the life of God. You can't get them together. They always repel each other. You can't hold on to your sin and have the Savior at the same time. No matter how hard you try, you can't make them stick. You have to repent. And when you repent, he unites you to God. See, that's what that repentance does. When you turn Away from your sin, which is what can, repentance means. It means turn, to have a change of mind, to go in a different direction. Then you're united to God at that same moment in time. When you turn your back on your sin, you find yourself being sucked to God. Because God is drawing us to Himself. We can't hold on to our life of sin and the Savior. We have to repent, we have to leave our old life behind. It also means seeking pers- purposefully. Seeking purposefully. If we're to surrender to this compulsion, it means surrendering purposefully. God doesn't just reveal to to those who just passively go through life. God wants us to hunt for Him, to long for Him, to pursue Him. And we'll find out that when we are pursuing Him, that He's been pursuing us the whole time. As Jeremiah says, You will seek Me and find Me when you seek Me with all your heart. Some people say, well, I I called on God and he didn't do anything. But did you really? Did you just go through the motions? God can read your heart. Well, I asked God to help me in this situation and he didn't help me. He He didn't help me in this moment. Well, first of all, why do you expect God just to show up at the crisis moments? As if he's just 911 and he's at your beck and call. Why do you think that God's a performing monkey for you when you've done nothing for him? Why do you expect God just to show up because of who you are? He loves you and he showed up in the person of his son. And he is going to show up when we do call on him in real, genuine repentance and truth. But God knows our heart and he's not going to come to us if we're not truly repentant and genuinely our hearts are not broken before him. God wants our hearts to be completely broken before him. So, seeking pers- purposefully, that's what these magi were doing. They were seeking intently, they had a goal to find who this coming king was. And they persevered. And then as the star continued to move, they followed it faithfully. See, that's that letter C. They followed faithfully what God had revealed as God continued to show them. They, they left confidently. They were seeking purposefully. But they kept following faithfully. And that's what it means to follow God. It's to continually persevere day after day, learning what it means to take up our cross daily and to follow Him. We need to follow faithfully. Look at verse 9 after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. They kept going day after day. Where is it going? Let's continue on. Let's continue on. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. See, so they didn't just look after the star. They kept at it day by day, not by night, mile after mile, until they came to the place where it was. It led them to a foreign land. It led them to a foreign king. But until they came to the place where it was, they didn't quit. They left Jerusalem and made that trek to Bethlehem. They followed faithfully. See, a true believer in Christ is one who day after day takes up his cross, dies to self, and follows Christ. A true believer is one who has repented of his or her sins, turned from their life of sin, and sought to love the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. A true believer in Christ will want to be holy. Not that you've arrived at holiness, but you'll want to be holy, to grow in this relationship with Christ. A true believer seeks to help the less fortunate, the sick, the hurting, to give shelter to the homeless, to give food to the hungry, and clothes to the naked. A true believer in Christ will seek justice for those who are oppressed and desires to help the widow, the orphan, and the refugee. A true Christian is filled with forgiveness and grace. I'm not saying that a true Christian is perfectly doing all of these things. None of us arrived, and none of us are doing all of these things. I guarantee it. But This is where our desire should be to do and have God change us and grow us and help us take our next steps so that we can do these things. God's offer of salvation is gradually changing us from the inside out. As C.S. Lewis wrote, C.S. Lewis said this, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you were not surprised. But presently he starts knocking the house in about a way about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. The purpose that I'm trying to convey to you and show you is that God is changing us and is going to continually change us. If we are submitting and surrendering to him, he's going to continue to mold us to do those things that I mentioned to be the people that He wants us to be. God is not done with us yet. And if you think you're a perfect Christian, then I have to say that you're perfectly deluded. We're all in process. We're all growing. We all have a next step that we need to be taking with Christ. Though we are perfect positionally in the sight of God, each one of us needs to be progressing in our holiness and sanctification before God. God changes us from the inside out. Changes those who have repented of their sin, tasted of His salvation, and daily to surrender to Him by taking up their cross, dying to self, and living for the Savior. Christ is making us into a palace. He's given us new life in Him. Therefore, we should be rejoicing in the Christ of Christmas. Rejoicing in the Christ of Christmas. How do we respond to this new life? We are to rejoice in it. Many of us don't realize what we've been given, so we don't know what to do with it. It's like the story that Tony Evans tells of this uh, this young man who had um, done very, very became very, very successful in his twenties. He moved out of state, started a business, became uh, I mean just made a huge amount of money. And uh, as the Christmas season was approaching, he wanted to get his father something very nice, very special, and very unique. He searched all over, and finally he found something that he felt he could give his dad that would blow his dad out of the water. It was a parakeet, but it was a parakeet that could speak five languages, and that it could sing a song, The Yellow Rose of Texas, okay? And this parakeet cost $10,000. It's a very expensive bird. And so he, 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 he decides to purchase this parakeet. He buys it, and he has it sent to his father, and he's eagerly awaiting his father's phone call. And so he, he doesn't hear from his dad, so he calls his dad and he says, Dad, did you get my present? Dad's like, yeah, I certainly did. He said, what did you think of it? Did you like it? He goes, oh, yeah, it was delicious. <laughs> See, the purpose is, is that he got a gift and didn't know what to do with it. He didn't realize what he had. See, many of us are, are like that with the gift that God has given us in the person of his son and the salvation that he's made available in and through his sacrifice and sacrificial death on the cross and resurrection from the dead. That he's given us a new life, forgiveness of sins, a new purpose, new meaning, and a new way to live. We need to know how to respond and rejoice in this gift that God has given unto us. How do we rejoice in this Christ of Christmas? Well, let's look at what the Magi did. Look at verse 11. And going into that Into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped. Worshipped. These weren't Jews. These were actually more pagan wise men that God calls to himself. And they recognize who he is. And they respond. And rejoicing in the Christ of Christmas, the first step to do that is worshipping the king worshiping the king, giving him the essence of who we are. You know, we all worship something, an ideal, a person, a figure, our work, our success, ourselves, something. We all have something on the throne room of our hearts that dictates the decisions that we make on a daily basis. And God demands to have first place because if he is not on the throne room of our hearts, then we are guilty of idolatry. He desires to have first place. And how do we respond to this relationship that God has given unto us and this great gift? We, we, we respond by worshiping the, worshiping the Christ of Christmas, this King. He alone is worthy of our praise. Secondly, we're to make sure that we are giving our gifts. Giving our gifts. Look at verse 11. In going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. The wise men didn't, did not arrive at the time of Jesus' birth in a manger, but up to two years later when Jesus was living in a house, if we see that in verse 16, they honored him with their gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, which is why people, as I mentioned earlier, think that there were three wise men. Now the frankincense is a resin used ceremonially for the only incense permitted on the Jewish altar. Myrrh is a sap that is used in incense as a stimulant tonic. And gold is obviously just that gold. So they gave their gifts. Now, the question that I have for us is this. What are we giving God? What do we give God? You know, it's interesting. I don't know how it is in your office, where you work, at your school. But chances are you might have a Christmas tree there. And under that tree there might be presents. Presents. I've been in places where they have those you've been to the office where you see those beautiful presents under the tree and then you go up and you shake the present and there's nothing in it right it's just for show right you know that's what many of us give to God we have it all wrapped nice but there really there's nothing in it we don't give God the essence of who we are we just pay lip service we give outwardly we just give the illusion the paper But we don't give what's in the heart. God demands and wants our heart. He wants our heart. He wants us to give our gifts. Thirdly, we're to make sure that we are listening to the Lord. Look at verse 12. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. God was speaking to them. The completion of his canon wasn't done yet, and God was speaking to them in a dream. God still can speak in dreams. That's not his primary means of sharing and speaking. Primary is through his word, through prayer, through other people, through the preaching of his word. But there are moments that God will speak through a dream. And they listened and responded accordingly. Now, as I say that, this is an aside. Whatever God says or you feel communicates to you in that moment in time, it will never contradict his word. If it contradicts his word, he didn't say it. Period. Okay, that's just the aside there. But listening to the Lord. You know, many of us don't do that. Most of us have cell phones. You ever had someone call you and it's really inconvenient? What do you hit? Ignore, dismiss. You know, God's calling. You're going to take his call? Or do you hit ignore, dismiss? When his promptings of his his spirit are are sharing with you and and you're like, it's really inconvenient now, God. I I don't want to do it right now. I don't want you in my life right now. I'm just going to ignore and dismiss. Don't ignore God's calls. He's worthy to receive everything that we have. We must make sure we are listening to God when he speaks to us through his word, through his preaching, through prayer, through his people. Lastly, I'd like us to look at verse 13. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. I told you that he was a paranoid, paranoid uh, megalomaniac. And he wanted to destroy anyone that was a threat to him. And, and, and today we still have that. If you stand for Christ and you stand for what is true, people will come against you. It's inevitable. So if you're to be rejoicing in this Christ of Christmas... I have to tell you and right now that you need to be prepping for persecution. If you live this life that God desires you to live, people will misunderstand you. Your family might reject you. They might make fun of you. Colleagues at work might turn their back on you. They might gossip about you. They might slander you. They might try and, and speak out against you in all kinds of different ways. They might try to slander, malign you. They might try to get you fired or kicked off the air. We need to understand that this is nothing new. Jesus said, this, this world hates me, and it's going to hate you because you're a follower of me. It's inevitable. If, they, if you're truly following Christ, we need to be prepping for persecution. Persecution is bound to happen if we follow Jesus. It is inevitable. People will turn against you, but the reward is far greater than the, anything else we would face. Why? Because we realize that we... The gift we have been given and how precious it is that God has come to us where we couldn't go. Because we couldn't go to God. God came to us. See, that's what the gospel is about, and that's what the Christmas story is about. God came to us because we couldn't come to him. I want to conclude with a small video. We're going to see if it works. We had some problems with it earlier. But I am a sucker for stories of GIs coming home for the holidays or GIs coming home, period. I don't know if you've seen these videos where a GI comes home and he surprises his or her family? There's one story that I want to share with you. This took place in October of 2012 at a Georgia Bulldogs and University of South Carolina Gamecocks football game. This is the Fele family. And the Fele family had their their, uh, father and husband, Scott, was serving, if I remember it right, was serving in South Korea and he couldn't come home for the holidays. So they honor his family as the military family of the game. So they bring him out His wife and his two of his three kids, Brianna, who's 15, and Cameron, who's 10, along with his wife, Tammy, um, at halftime of the football game, and they're on the Jumbotron. When the Jumbotron uh, comes up on the screen, it comes their dad's face. And they're they're surprised to see his face. Now, you can't hear the audio very well, but I just want you to watch what goes on in this picture because I believe it is a picture of something that God has laid forth for us that I want to explain in a moment. Can we cue that video? There's the family, Tammy, Brianne, and Cameron. Do we have any audio at all? He has served tours of duty in Germany, Kutter, Afghanistan, Dwayne, and his caribou station with the 36-second location in Camp Carroll, in Korea. But the first guys failed to warn his decorations include the notorious service matter. Now, you can't hear exactly what's being said, but they're showing that there's the family at the stadium. And the announcer is describing the dad, where he served him, and how much he longs to be at home, and they're honoring the family. So now they're looking at the jumbotron to see this message that they didn't know was going to happen. the uh, ones that were chosen to be recognized today. People don't realize the sacrifices that you guys make as a family to myself and to the military, to my wife. The sacrifices you make are are, are just unbelievable. You you sacrificed your job, you sacrificed your friends that you grew up with, and especially getting to be home with your family. And to my children, I just can't believe the stuff that you have to go through. It seems like every time that you get into a new school and you make new friends, you turn around and have to leave. Most fathers pride themselves in wanting their family to look up to them. But I have to admit that I'm the one that looks up to y'all. Um, I'd like to thank the University of South Carolina and the Columbia University of for giving my family this opportunity. And um, this is something that we're going for the rest of our lives. I'm kind of jealous because I really would like to be here to watch the game to beat up in the nose today. I'd like to special to Maybe uh, I know you're probably getting a little emotional right now out there on the field. Uh, But you need to let that go. Enjoy this day. You've earned it. And just keep in mind that my tour is almost over. And I'll see you real, real soon. it's a great picture see the picture that is of that god had to come to us we couldn't go to him see that family couldn't go to see their dad and he said i'm going to be there real real soon and in some ways it's just like prophecy god is saying that i'm going to come and i'm going to visit you because you can't come to me i'm going to come to you and when when he comes to us and we see what he has done and the love that he has we run to him See, God made the first step in giving His Son to come to us. How do we respond? We run to Him. That's that greatest relationship that we can be reconnected with our Heavenly Father. And God is offering His Son to us that saying, I have come to you, run to me. How are we going to respond to that great love? Because we were separated because of our sins, but God took the first step by giving His Son to die for us, to be born, to enter into this life, and then how do we respond? We're to run to Him, to wrap our arms around Him, to love Him for what He has done to us. That's available to everyone, without exception. That you can have that gift of salvation that God has made available through Jesus Christ. Scripture says that we are to repent and believe. That if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Don't wait. Do so today. Let's pray. Father, help us to seize the season. Help us to realize that you have taken that first step to us by giving us your son. That we were far off. Lord, we'd heard about your coming just as the Magi did. Lord, they ran to seek you. Lord, so do we we run after you, and as we're running to you, we found that you had were already coming to us. We thank you for what you've done, and Lord, today I pray if there's someone here who does not, has not yet placed their faith and trust in you, that they might call on you, that they might repent of their sins, and embrace you as Lord and Savior of their lives, to realize the gift that they've been given in the person of your Son, and what he was born to do, to die, to give his life for us. And for those that may have heard the gospel many times, they've turned their back, they've, they've turned away, they know they've been prodigals. Lord, I pray that you help them turn back to you, that they might see you and what it is that you have done on our behalf. And Lord, let them experience the joy of a reconciled relationship with you and may we celebrate together the real meaning of this season. And May we seize the opportunities that we have before us to make your name known and see lives transformed. We pray this now in Jesus' name.